Welcome to our podcast, Immunization Morning Commute, Making the Case for Vaccines. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccines five. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. In our previous episodes in this series on vaccinations, our faculty experts discussed debunking vaccine myths, vaccine hesitancy, health inequity, and access to vaccines, and took a look at the history of vaccines. In each episode, they also discussed how clinicians can make the case to their patients about the necessity for getting vaccinated and keeping up with required boosters. The COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccine rollout provided real-world evidence of how vaccines can begin to turn the tide of a disease. But not everyone is convinced, and vaccine myths and hesitancy are still an issue. So much so that the Autism Science Foundation has developed a way to help people understand why the benefits of vaccine outweigh their limited risk. This is particularly important for parents who are hesitant to vaccinate their children because of unfounded fears that immunizations can cause autism. The foundation calls this the case method. C is for corroborate, acknowledge the patient's concern and find points on which you can agree. Set the tone for a respectful, successful talk. A is for about me. Describe what you have done to build your knowledge base and expertise on this issue. S is for science. Describe what the science says. And E is for explain or advise. Give your advice to the patient based on science. This method is equally effective when talking with adults who are fearful about vaccines. Let's revisit some of the clinical pearls our experts discuss to help make the case for vaccines, especially ways to help individuals who might otherwise be hesitant to get on board. First, Dr. David Rosenthal from Northwell Health in Great Neck, New York, and Dr. Eric Choi Pena, also from Northwell Health in New Hyde Park, New York, briefly touch on the world before vaccines. Really, what was the world like before vaccines and what were we looking at before vaccines existed, Eric? Hey, David, thanks. Um, this is something that I think in recent months we've been reminded of, but normally takes a little bit of a memory jog to realize kind of where we've come, um, you know, with smallpox being one of the uh, first vaccine prevented illnesses that, you know, resulted in thousands of deaths per year. Um, to things like polio, which um, I would wager that most clinicians in the United States have not seen a case of polio, uh, to measles, rubella, and um, now on to COVID and other vaccine-preventable illnesses that we're battling. The world before vaccines was a world that was, uh, was very different. And, uh, you know, in public health school, we're taught that vaccines are some of the most cost-effective public health interventions that you can do. And we've seen that uh, proven over and over again. Right. I mean, I remember back, you know, when we're thinking about smallpox, three out of every 10 people who had smallpox ended up dying. And it's certainly been around since the, uh, you know, since the pharaohs and the mummies, we certainly have identified smallpox that have been around for that long. But really, we've had some phenomenal eradication with smallpox that's happened that's been so much more significant. 
um, that's really caused a significant change in what we're seeing and, and what's happening. And really, um, in the 1970s, really was the last time that we had someone that died of smallpox. And so we really pretty much completely eradicated smallpox as a result. But I know that measles is a little bit more of a different story. And, and we've had some recent uh, situations with measles that have kind of been a little bit more challenging recently. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things about measles is it's one of the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to low vaccination rates, because it's one of the first outbreaks of, of infectious disease that you see. And you see it even when the vaccination rates drop into the low 90s, you can start seeing sporadic outbreaks. And it's, it's certainly humbling. And when you think about all of the technological advances medicine has had over the past 50 or 60 years, I don't think any other technology has eradicated disease the way the vaccines have. Absolutely. And I think you know, measles, we were hoping to kind of get rid of by the 80s, but I know we were in the United States able to completely clear it by 2000. But then, of course, we know that there have been you know, new cases that have really spot that have really come up, in, including in the U.S., more than 650 cases in 2014. And then again in, in 2019, where we had almost 1,300 cases in the United States. So the concern is, is really that it's important for us to continue to maintain high levels of vaccination to continue to maintain that level of herd immunity and prevent um, outbreaks within certain specific populations. Dr. Joseph McGowan from the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in Manhasset, New York, reminds us how groundbreaking vaccine development has been in the history of medicine, and in fact, humankind. And he reviews Advisory Committee and Immunization Practices, ACIP, recommendations for young adults and adults. We have to remember that vaccination has been widely considered one of the greatest global medical achievements of modern civilization. According to WHO, we avert about two to three million deaths a year from vaccination. And it's one of the major contributors to our uh, advanced uh, increasing life expectancy over the past century. So once commonplace diseases like smallpox, polio, and measles have been effectively eradicated from vaccines, so a complacency is not really an option. And we've seen, at least in New York, we saw not too long ago, how a lapse in vaccination led to local epidemic and measles cases. So vaccination is cost-effective, it's scalable to provide a passive means of disease control for an entire population. Uh, what we need is probably a diabetes vaccine too. We've learned a lot about vaccines as a tool to protect us against infections, especially from respiratory infections like COVID or influenza. So in order for them to be effective, we have to get a higher level of immunity in the population, high enough to stop the spread. And we've heard talk recently about herd or population immunity, and that's the level of protection needed uh, to achieve, um, uh, get the population protected against any uh, spreading disease. And that can vary between 50 and over 90%. If we look at our list of the vaccines that are necessary for adults and young adults that are recommended um, by the uh, Advisory Committee on Immune Practices, that's the ACIP, for example, influenza, that has an infection rate of about two cases per infection, uh, shorter immunity, so for that we vaccinate every year. For Tdap, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, that requires a booster every 10 years. For measles, mumps, rubella, you have to dose at least one dose for people born after 1957, uh, up to age 65. For recombinant zoster, if you're over age 50, get two doses of that and no booster is needed. For HPV, we give two to three doses for those 19 to 26, uh, but we can vaccinate up to 45, but that's 
something you discuss with your patient on a case-by-case -case basis, a shared decision-making. And no booster is needed for that one. And the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine uh, should be given to those over 65 or younger age if you have an immune suppressive disease. And then based on need, you can give hepatitis A, B, and meningococcal vaccination. Dr. McGowan also noted that while keeping up with ACIP's recommendations are most likely on clinicians' radar, the clinical touch points for communicating these advisories are not always happening. He and Dr. Rosenthal discussed this dilemma. Something for young people, and many people nowadays, they get their care from urgent care centers. So they don't have a relationship necessarily with a primary care doc, and they go in for a specific problem, they get that problem dealt with, they're in and out in five or 10 minutes. And so looking at their overall preventive strategy, their, uh, the things that they need to protect themselves, that's left out. You're absolutely right. I think that's really an important piece because when we're looking at younger individuals, I mean, I think people are not necessarily going to see primary care providers as often. And one thing that we need to do is, is we need to figure out how to structure those resources so that we can make sure we can get vaccines to younger people um, as well, especially in the young adults and adolescents. And there's some really great examples. I think if people go to college, then they, they often are being able to give certain vaccines that are important for, for college-age students, like um, the meningococcal vaccine, um, both the, the group B as well as the AC. CWNY vaccine. But one of the things that we're seeing is, is that people that, that are not necessarily college bound, even though they're living in large congregate settings, they're living with five or six roommates in an apartment or whatever, they're not really being offered this vaccine in the same way. But when clinical touch points do happen, what are the best ways to deliver the vaccine message? How do clinicians make the case? One of the things that I find that's most important, and we've been seeing this a lot with the COVID vaccine, is, is really when I tell my story, when I say that I got my vaccine, and I think that that personal narrative actually makes a big difference because I think that what happens is, is that what better advice could I give my patients than the advice that I give myself or that I give my loved ones? And so I think that by talking about the fact that I received this vaccine, I received my flu shot this year, I received my COVID vaccine, I made sure I got my, my um, measles titers checked and made sure I was protected against measles. These are really important concepts that say not only is this healthcare that I'm providing is the care that I want to give you, but it's the care that I'm giving myself and my loved ones. And so I think that connection with the patients, it allows you to establish rapport. It overcomes a lot of the bias that's there, and it really lets you tell your personal narrative in a way that kind of creates the connection with the patient and is able to talk about it. For certain other vaccines that are going to be treated for patients that are slightly older than I am, um, I'll talk about the shingles vaccine. And instead of talking about my experience, I'll talk about that I've recommended that my parents get it and my parents got that vaccine. So if even if that vaccine doesn't specifically apply to you or your age, I think as a provider, by telling that narrative, you can talk about the importance of it. You can tell what's happening, but I think that that personal connection makes a big difference and overcomes a lot of challenges. Dr. Robert Gladder from Lenox Hill Hospital, Northwell Health in New York City, Join Dr. Choi Pena to discuss these clinical touch points, especially in light of misinformation about vaccines. So this all boils down to trust and, you know, validation. These are key issues in determining how um, we accept, um, you know, the ability or, you know, decision to vaccinate our, ourselves. Um, and and it, it clearly has ramifications. So knowing this, the amount of misinformation, disinformation that exists, how can we sort of course correct our society? What are the ways we can really sort of try to approach this in your mind? I think, I think that's a great question. You know, one of the things that we have to remember is that two of the most trusted professions still in our society are doctors and nurses. 
And I think, you know, reaching those practitioners, because there's vaccine hesitancy among amongst our profession, and, and reaching those practitioners um, is going to be key in, in building that trust and having those difficult conversations with families and with, uh, with adults that may not uh, have all the information, but may be nervous, um, especially with the most recent kind of COVID vaccination effort where it feels, at least it's portrayed, that the um, the vaccination, that the the studies were rushed, that the data safety might have been compromised, and none of that's of course true. But there's that perception out there, and I think it's it's kind of highlighted or put under a microscope the uncertainty around vaccines. And you know the the conversations are tough ones; they're not quick visits, they're not three minute conversations. A lot of times you have to find out, you know, what is the concern, what are you worried about, and then we can talk and we can have an honest conversation about the existing data. And you know, I don't. I don't sugarcoat things for patients. I don't. Um, I present the data and I like let them make an informed decision. But I find that often the decisions that they're making are based out of fear and a lack of information, and or drawing information from sources that just aren't reliable or credible. And so I think disarming that and giving people real world information um, is the first step. And I think that eliminates a, a good portion of the hesitancy that we're seeing today. Right, and I, I think I mean I completely agree. And I think if you tell a person that if I vaccinate you, there's a you know 100% chance you won't be hospitalized and you won't die. I think that generally would tell someone that they may want to you know get the vaccine. And I think that's the case when you tell patients that, like, look, you may get the flu shot and then get the flu, but you know with your COPD and heart failure, you're not going to die in a ventilator from flu. And that's a very big patient-oriented outcome, as we call them. And I think that's a that's something that needs to be talked about because it's not just a failure if you get the disease. If it prevents you from going into the hospital or dying from that disease, that's a huge win. Our faculty also noted the altruistic nature of vaccines, and we've seen this during the COVID-19 pandemic. Wearing a mask, social distancing, and hand washing protect those around us as much as ourselves. And now with vaccination ramping up, the curve of the pandemic is beginning to flatten. This we're all in this together mindset can help convince patients that keeping up with their vaccine schedules is doing something that's bigger than themselves. That's even seen in New Zealand, where you look at, you know, sort of a mindset where citizens want to take care of one another and they feel that it's their responsibility to get vaccinated. And so, you know, raising that concern that you're not just helping yourself, but you're helping your fellow man. And that really has, a, you know, a big, big sound effect. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think it's all about framing it because I, I think that Americans don't respond very well to the government wants you to do this and you have to do it. But we respond very well to, hey, to keep your community safe and to make sure the elderly in your community aren't at risk of, of dying. Um, people would step up and help their neighbors all the time. I mean, this is this is something where you know community is is no less valuable in American society than in any other society. And I think if we, you know, hit those points, I think that's the way to overcome this uh, kind of feeling of, of of just pushing against a government mandate. It's not Absolutely. just we don't do it because the government mandates it. We do it because it's the it's the neighborly thing to do, and it's the way to keep our communities and our kids and our uh, and our parents all safe. And, um, you know, I, I think that's where we're going to win. Um, I think the mandate is, is going to be maybe a necessary part of, of standing this up. As you can see, the clinician's role in making the case is vital. Dr. Rosenthal addressed this with Dr. Choi Pena and Dr. McGowan. 
Um, I know you're an ED doctor, but when we're looking at things like tetanus or whatever, we certainly want to be able to create an ability to create protection um, from things like tetanus and diphtheria and pertussis at certain pivotal points in people's life um, and to try to introduce, introduce these vaccines as a preventative measure. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, that you know, one of the problems with boosters is some of the population you're trying to hit isn't going to regularly um, interface with primary care or or regular healthcare appointments. And so, you know, from my vantage point in the ER, you know, the person that comes in with a laceration, their risk of tetanus is probably pretty low. I don't think I'm actually kind of concerned about clinical tetanus infection on most people that I see in in my urban ED in the middle of New York City. I think I use it as an opportunity to update people's vaccination, to update people's pertussis vaccination, um, you know, update their tetanus, and kind of think about it as a public health measure in order to access kind of an area of the population that otherwise probably wouldn't seek medical care for those boosters. Right. And I think that's the same thing. Often during pregnancy, we talk about certain you know, vaccines that we need to introduce, and tetanus is certainly one of those. So being, being able to give um, Tdap or tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis during each pregnancy is something that's important because what that allows us to do is it allows us to protect not only that person, but also to protect um, the children. All of the current guidelines for adult immunization schedules can be found on the CDC's website at www.cdc.gov slash vaccines slash ACIP is a way to kind of take a look at these adult immunization schedules to make sure that we're creating all of the opportunities. If it's during the ER visit, during the clinic, if it's in an urgent care location or during pregnancy, that we can really help find these patients when they need to get their routine vaccines and to not only give them vaccines in a certain situation, but really to bring up the conversation of, of routine vaccination and making sure we're taking care of adult vaccination and immunization as a preventative, um, proactive measure as physicians. So that's why it's, I think, really important that we're able to maintain that doctor-patient relationship and be able to have that association where people have that trust because, unfortunately, it's challenging when we're not able to build that and when people are only getting episodic care um, in urgent cares or in other locations. We really need to try to make sure that we are having a way to kind of look at a preventative immunization schedule um, and evaluate on an annual basis what's going on and which immunizations people need to kind of catch up and to, to take a look at those updated boosters. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think we need to take every instance. It's one of our one of our best weapons in fighting disease. And I think we should use every instance and every interaction possible to make sure that we're informing people and getting them vaccinated. And I think the important point also is to address and to tell our own stories. Like I said earlier, we really need to, as we're convincing people and talking about what's happening, we really need to talk about not only the importance in the scientific data, but really telling your own story and saying, I got my vaccine. It really is important for me. My arm hurt a little bit, but that was the only side effect I had. I think it's important for you to get your vaccine too. I think that's a great way to, to wrap up. Uh, the role of the physician to the clinician to bring up the vaccine, make that part of the, of the visit, present it in a positive way, not just in an altruistic way, but in a way that uh, is of direct uh, benefit to the individual, to their family, et cetera. I think that's critically important. It is said that public health works when nothing happens. Whether mitigating the current pandemic or preventing a recurrence of diseases we haven't seen for the most part for decades, such as polio and smallpox. Clinicians, as our faculty so expertly showed us, are the star players in the goal of making public health work. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccines five. For all the episodes in this five-part series, 
please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash immunization. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.